Without darkness, nothing comes to birth. May Sarton. Without enough splattered blood and guts to rival a murder scene, nothing comes to birth. Liz Jane. There is this part in childbirth called crowning. I think they call it that because your more delicate parts are arranged in a stretched crown around the baby's head. Crown is a bad term for this because it calls to mind images of fairies laying wreaths of flowers on each other's hair. A better term for it would be magma palooza because it calls to mind volcanic eruptions. A better name for it would be, ah, I changed my mind. Because in that moment, you realize that this is the worst thing that has ever happened to anyone and how did you forget about physics and there is just no way this will work. You change your mind and you decide the baby will have to go back. And then you remember moms who told you that this is what would happen and how they told you that the only thing to do at this point is push like hell. So you do. And then just at the absolute worst part, the doctor looks up at you from the valley of blood and chirps. And now what we're going to do is we're just going to pause for a minute to let things stretch. To be clear, she chirps this while there is a head sitting in your vagina, which to be clear, feels like having a head sitting inside your vagina. And the doctor tells you that this is a great moment to just rest and let things stretch. Take a few deep breaths and, you know, hang out. While there's a head sitting inside your vagina. Blood, screaming, push, and pause. That's how it's done. There's no other way. The blood-spattered pause. The moment when you are up to your neck in it and there is no going back, but suddenly you stop. In life? It's too easy to mistake this moment for cowardice. You can't quite finish coming out of the closet, or you can't leave the job with the horrible boss, or you can't quite speak all the truth you were hoping to speak to power. You suddenly become frozen. This isn't cowardice. You weren't mistaken. You're not too tired or not adequate to the task. This isn't the beginning of self-doubt or failure. This is just the blood-spattered pause. It's when your mind and soul are stretching, when you're becoming more sure and more grounded, more open, when you're taking a moment to minimize the tearing and to gather your strength. And it's not cowardice, it's wisdom. It's not a falter in your voice when you pause to listen and inhale and breathe out. Courage is a thing you push into, sure, but courage is also a thing you stretch into, a thing you gather up. And then you push again, because you know deep inside yourself that there is no way that this beautiful, precious, slimy, blood-soaked little miracle is going to fit tidily back where it was. Things are different now. Tearing or no tearing, this is going to happen. Some kind of coronation is occurring. Hi, I'm Ann Barker. And I'm Liz James. And you're listening to The Cracked Cup. <laughs> you think you think it's an okay one to use? Because you had said yeah. before you didn't think it was funny. It's not funny. Oh, I feel like it's funny. It's powerful and it's more graphic and intense than it is funny. I think anybody who has had a head in their vagina, it depends on how much distance they have from that moment. Maybe it is 
has no target audience because when I wrote it, I was like, this won't work well for anyone who hasn't had a head in their vagina, but for, you know, 30, 40% of the population, it will be okay. But you're saying it doesn't work for those people. So maybe it is a reading without target audience. (laughs) I didn't say it wouldn't work. I just said it isn't funny. After I did it, now I'm wondering if it was a good choice for the National Worship Service last summer. But I did that reading and... Afterwards, Eric, who, now that you mention it, didn't find it funny, says, Meh. it was a good reading. Like, it was meaningful and everything. I'm like, what, what's your problem? And he goes, it really just, your wording was awkward. It was like you were trying to avoid saying vagina. <laughs> it's like, I was. This was a version without the word vagina. <laughs> and I said, you know, in church services, <laughs> in many traditions, and you use many of them come from other traditions, you generally don't say vagina. <laughs> from the pulpit and he looked at me like huh well that's weird <laughs> i thought oh and this is the difference when you are born you you instead of coming to it from somewhere else <laughs> it's like those quaint customs of those people who don't want to say vagina from the pulpit <laughs> exactly but they have not taken owl <laughs> <laughs> no oh when i was talking to him about i have a dream of someday doing um a line of uu condoms but they expire so you can't you can't buy a bulk and save them forever. So it's a tricky product to create. I have permission from Jason Shelton to use Answering the Call of Love. And I have permission funny. from Lynn Unger to use um, Come Come Whoever You Are. <laughs> and my favorite would be, of course, the signature for When Thoughts and Prayers Are Not Enough. Exactly. So I was pitching that to Eric and he goes, what? Why would you use sex for When Thoughts and Prayers Are Not Enough? And I was like, well, no, it, it means the, the condom use. The protection. The, the protection for when thoughts and have... prayers are not enough. <laughs> his, eye, his eyes got real wide. He's like, there are people who use thoughts and prayers instead of condoms. Like, why would you do that? We and have, thought, we have raised our children ow. poorly. They totally don't understand how the world works. <laughs> I'm okay with them thinking that you can't have sex without a condom on. That works out great. Remember why I want to talk about transition and change and divorce and stuff Tell is me. because I have a few people in my life I have noticed who are undergoing significant changes. So things like divorce mm-hmm. or like especially changes in living situation because when people quarantined they realized, mm-hmm. uh oh, this isn't working, and then they couldn't really do a lot about it until things started to lift. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of people going through those kinds of shifts. And I remember when I got my divorce, how incredibly helpful your perspective and what you had to say was. Nice. And I've always wanted to do an episode where we talk about transition and change generally, but also specifically about divorce, because I remember feeling like it was the end of the world when I was going to divorce. And you were so incredibly helpful with your perspective. Well, and that feeling is a lot like that moment that you described in the reading, right? That transition moment. Where it feels like, I remember transition in childbirth for me was that moment where I kept thinking, oh my God, I'm going to die. Oh my God, I'm going to die. And then I hit transition and it's like, oh no, this is transition (laughs) because you can't even think you're going to die anymore. You just know you're going to (laughs) die. And it's the no turning back moment. And I think that happens a lot. Um with the end of relationships is we hit a no turning back moment. Sometimes it's years after that, before we leave, you know, sometimes we 
hit the moment we leave and we bounce back and forth for a while. Like there's all kinds of ways that it happens. I don't mean we hit the no turning back moment and it's easy. But you still try. That's why there's that yeah. like, we're just going to sit and let things stretch and see what we can do. <laughs> like there's always that where you realize it has to shift and then you don't make the change and right. you think that you're weak. I already said this in the reading. <laughs> Well, and your thing is your thing is poetic and beautiful. That piece of reading, right? Anybody who has also funny pushed a bowling ball through their vagina knows <laughs> that there, that is this profound moment. And what you missed in the messiness that you can't put all of the things in, or it's not poetic and beautiful, is that sometimes when they say stop, that little bugger goes backwards. Oh. <gasps> I didn't know that. Yes. I so, thought they weren't allowed to go backwards. Well, they're not allowed, but they do. So I don't know how many times you've held a head in your vagina before you gave birth, but <laughs> we don't have a lot of experience with how to hold it in place. And so when they say hold it, it's like, okay, I'm going to use my brain to figure this out, but my body does not know this skill. Right? So you try to hold it except that that doesn't work. And so it kind of sloops backwards until it hits that point where it can't go backwards anymore. And I think that's what I'm talking about in relationships, right? Sometimes you hit yeah. this moment where you're like, uh-oh, I think we're done. And then it sloops backwards. And it just says, <laughs> oh, no, I'm sucked back in again for one of any 10,000 reasons, right? See, I didn't know that because when they said you need to pause to stretch, I didn't. I just kept pushing. Because for people who don't know, Eric's heart rate was down and it was staying down. And so I was convinced that the only person who could save the baby baby was me because I could push it out faster than a C-section, which turns out I could. So I didn't listen to them. But I was just thinking metaphorically, not to stretch the metaphor too far. Uh, Anne uh, was there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fun. Kathy will be happy. (laughs) I remember like worrying about Eric and the heartbeat and all the kinds of things. And I was turning, I was trying to look at the monitors. And I remember you saying, no, no, no. This is your job, right? You're just in charge of the pushing. All that other stuff is somebody else's job. And I was just thinking about the metaphor of divorce. And I remember one of the most helpful things that you did for me was I had like this whole sphere of things I felt like I had to manage and deal with and think about. Mm -hmm. And you were like, nope, this is your next task. Mm -hmm. And this is the next project. And this is like, I was like, oh my God, I have to start a career. And you're like, well, you can give it a few months. And I was like, but what if I don't start a career? And you're like, you can't start a career in this condition anyways. There's blood everywhere. Exactly. <laughs> when you were talking about why we picked change and transition, it reminded me that the reason change and transition mattered to me so much is that as we're in this thing that people talk about post-COVID, which is bananas because we're not post-COVID <laughs> at all, there is a lot of anxiety around the changes. And mm-hmm. so in Alberta on July 1st, they have this slogan here in my lovely province, open for summer, and they are removing the restrictions. So today, you're not technically allowed to have people visit in your house, but on July 1st, you can have them all. Oh, wow. And you don't like have to no wear masks and you don't have to distance. Staging. Now, that's a rule. Yeah. Well, this is the staging. It's stupid. Wow. That's so, quite abrupt. Yeah. Right. Did so, you explain to them that you need to sit with the head in the vagina so that things can stretch? No, Did because then the that? stampede will be late. Oh. They have to open the province for the Calgary stampede. And I don't want any chuck wagon horses in my vagina. That's not a thing that I'm prepared to do. So I have noticed with being able to open up a little bit that I have forgotten some of the techniques of normal social interaction because most of my bubble is it's been my kids 
and John. And John is quite happy to have me do 98% of the talking. <laughs> and so, well, not 98% of the talking, but definitely more than my have share Have you asked him if he's happy or is it just the way it goes? <laughs> Actually, it took a long time for us to settle into the disproportionate because I'd be like, I have talked this long. Now it is your turn. And he had to convince me that it's not that everyone should talk the same amount. It's that everyone should talk the amount that they want to talk. And if everyone wants to talk 100% of the time, then maybe it's everyone gets the same amount. But that works for and us. So- you talk 100% of the time and I talk 100% of the time. <laughs> and then you just edit out the one that annoys you. <laughs> I have the power of the edit. You know, though, I think that you could be a good editor if Back you off. could learn the software. But <laughs> <laughs> I have to learn how to live stream my congregation. <laughs> oh, that's not hard. That's way easier than editing. I don't like you anymore. What have been the biggest transitions in your life? Because I remember one of my first introductions to you was you wrote, if you told me five years ago about who I am now, I wouldn't have believed you. And that's been true for every five years of my life. Is that mm. still true? That was 15, 20 years ago. Like, that's a good question. Let me think. Yeah, I know. I'm so good at this. It has been true for many parts of my life. Those five-year kind of transitions we're talking about have often been big, big, massive changes. Like I pick up and go somewhere else or I do something Mm -hmm. completely different. But when I was reading The Blood Spattered Pause again before we started recording, I was thinking about, you know, the most important transitions in my life are the ones that have changed the way I feel about myself or taught me something about myself. So childbirth for example, Mm -hmm. um, going through that experience was profound. And I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time there because the other one that is really profound that doesn't sound as big, but was for me was uh, refinishing the hardwood floor. It was like end of relationship time. I was moving out. I refinished a hardwood floor. I was told that I could not do it, that I did not have the strength or the touch. So I got a book from the library that told me I could and I did it. (laughs) (laughs) And the difference between childbirth where there's, you know, there's that moment of you can't turn back. In this one, I could have turned back at any point. I mean, I would have had a messy, ugly floor, but I could have Mm. turned back. I could have handed it over to someone else. I didn't have the fitness to get through it without pain. So the whole back of my legs Mm. was burning because there's a part where you have a machine that you have to bend over the whole time Mm. while you do all the edges. And there were a thousand times I wanted to quit and I didn't Mm. quit. And it was the hardest physical thing I had ever done. Being told I couldn't do it, doing it anyway, and not quitting when I felt like I was going to die. That transition moment for me taught me that I could do really hard things. Yeah. Well, that experience of thinking of yourself as a person with grit. Mm -hmm. For me, it was very much the year of guts. Like, you know, we have yearly themes. And that year where I said the theme of this year's guts, meaning acting with courage and paying attention to my gut feeling and acting on on instinct. And I didn't think think of myself as a courageous person at all. Mm -hmm. I've I've done brave things, but I've never done brave things by choice. (laughs) And acting for a whole year like a person with courage, sort of like with the hardwood floor. You're not really a person who who could finish a hardwood floor, but after you finish it, then you're like, oh, it appears I am a person that can finish a hardwood floor. I remember when it got really hard, there was a feeling of, ah, this is really hard, but there's also a kind of neat clarity to it. Mm -hmm. Like, this is the water slide I am on now. Mm -hmm. I have shoved off of the water slide and now I am on it. Yeah. Which I kind of am nostalgic for. Like, I loved that part. I think that's a clarity 
things like we have these these moments where we know something like when I hit this moment I can't go backwards yeah. when I know that I'm done and not all transitions are tidy like that like sometimes the baby's coming out it's gonna happen you've <laughs> given up your lease you have to move that kind of thing you've quit your job but sometimes the transition is messy and hard like you think you should or you shouldn't do something and you don't know yeah. for sure and then you're stuck in the transition limbo kind of like you're in the you're in the indecision place where you're not all in where you were but you're not all out okay so i have a question about the messy part when you're going through a challenging shift what do you use as your compass to know what you should do how do you know direction because when you're in a certain way of being mm -hmm. and divorce was the example for this right till death do us part you make your decision off you go on your track it's all laid out for you and knowing whether to jump the track and then once you have jumped the track what direction you should be going and like you have to make a whole bunch of direction-based decisions you didn't have to make and that's this is true for any decision i'm just using right divorce as an example what do you use as your way to find your direction when that happens so i trust my gut how do you I, know what your gut is saying? That's, well, because when I am in a blood spattered pause, that's all that's left is my gut. There's guts everywhere. <laughs> There's guts everywhere. No, those are the other people's guts. Yeah, those are the spare guts that you don't need anymore, like the placenta. Um, in a moment of crisis, time stands still for a second. When I drove the car off the cliff, not on purpose, there was a moment in the air where time stood still. You may need to 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 tell that story a little more fleshed out because not everybody knows you drove a car off a cliff not on purpose. You may need to start at the beginning. <laughs> Is that too fancy for the fast content? <laughs> when I had a car accident as a young person and it was a slippery road and I overcorrected and I went over the side of the cliff. I flew out 30 feet out and 30 feet down. No humans were harmed. Car was totaled. No humans were harmed. I had a little bump on my lip. But I thought I was going to die. There was a moment in the air where I realized turning the steering wheel did not change the direction of the car. It was dark out. <laughs> I didn't know I was off the ground until turning the steering wheel didn't change the car. And oh. I knew in that moment when time stood still that I was going to die because that's what happens in movies. When the car goes off the cliff, flaming ball of fire. <laughs> and so all there was in that moment was me alone with me. And so that's the same as the moment of transition in childbirth for me. And when I make a decision and I hit the no going back moment and I am aware of it, same thing. It's like, sometimes you think, I don't know if I can handle working at this job in this cafe any longer because I hate the people or my boss or it's too hard or it's too hot or whatever. But the minute I knew I was done with a job, there's just this moment where time stands still. And all there is, is me and my gut. And I know that guts are not 100% reliable. I know that. And you should be probably sober when you have this experience. I can't speak to the reliability of an impaired experience, although I hear for people it's also profound. For the record, but you were sober when you were driving the car off the cliff. I was. So thank you for that. Stone I was also sober. sober in childbirth and any time I've ever quit a job. Not Maybe not while I was making the decision or making the baby, but you know. <laughs> Anyway, I have this moment and I trust my gut. But then there's one more test. And the second test is, if I do this, will I be the person I can live with? 
Mm. And that's what matters the most to me. And that's more reliable than the gut because it doesn't matter if I'm right or wrong in the choice I'm making. What matters is, can I live with this decision afterwards? Yeah, that's really true. I've seen you try and make the decision that you're supposed to make because the consequences would be too big of right. doing anything else that is not in line with your values and it, it murders you and then you have to yeah. go do the other thing anyways. Thanks well, and one of the pieces of expert advice that always speaks to me is if you have a, a vision or a dream or an idea, like so you want to have a turtle farm, say. I don't know if that's mm -hmm. a thing. You should not ask advice from your parents unless they are turtle farmers, right? You should ask it. You should speak to turtle farmers. You should surround yourself with the people who understand and know how to do the thing. Why would you try to figure it out all by yourself when there are people who already know how to do it? And the other thing that I have learned only recently that is so important that you don't learn if you're an academic person because there's a lot of focus on picking a thing you're really good at and being good at it is that when you branch out into a new thing like the hardwood floor or installing the dishwasher, you can read up about it and you make your plan or in my case, you just start and see what happens. And you always make a mistake and then think you're bad at the thing. Mm -hmm. And then you need someone who's good at the thing who says, oh, no, actually, you just didn't type this bolt well enough. Because it, it has to be an apprenticeship model. Right. Because each plumbing system is different and each electric system is different. And there is so much mileage if you're going into a brand new thing, especially things like career change, to finding experts who are willing to offer you tiny bits of guidance and advice that take them such a short right. period of time and save you so much and I didn't understand that because I come from the you get a four-year degree and then you know how to do the thing and nah, there are nah. things maybe where that's true I don't know yeah. but none of the things I've done right in my heart I I just so badly want to find the book that told me how to refinish the hardwood floor I'm gonna to have to search it out and find it and write to the authors and tell them how they changed my life oh you should I'm, I'm going to now that I have said that I I have figured out already in my plan <gasps> how I will do this. So what the book said was, it is finicky and precise and you can, you will gouge the wood a little bit and you'll make mistakes and then you'll sand it out and you won't have the touch right away, but then you'll sand it out. And so, I mean, as long as you have a, more than a quarter inch of hardwood left, you're going to be okay. <laughs> and maybe there'll be a little groove or a dent, like start in a corner that's going to be behind the couch. Don't start in the center of the room. I mean, that would be dumb anyway. How many people start painting in the center of the wall? It makes me crazy on all the TV commercials. Anyway, you start at the edges, people. Yeah, but that's the same as the people who are driving cars really fast around the racetrack. Those are experts. You're not supposed to do it at home. If you look in the painting commercial, there's a little thing that says, professional painter on closed painting track. Do not try this at home. No, no. It is the opposite. I married a painter who every time some painting commercial comes on and the people are splashing the colors in the center of the wall, screams, oh my God, people. Anyway, the book said, you will make mistakes and then you'll sound mm -hmm. it out. And it's not impossible. Take your time. You can do it. Yeah. The podcast that I love so much that is the Van Life podcast he walked us through how things go wrong in the van. Right. And right. he's like, and this is how you think, what is the simplest explanation? 
And then you try to try that. <laughs> that doesn't work. You think, what is the next simplest explanation? And just having that guy's voice in my head mm-hmm. when it's not, something goes wrong and it's spreading, right? It's not just I can build an electrical system or I can do plumbing. It's all right. the things that I think I can't do. Uh, it's just his voice going, well, screwing up is how you get to being good at things. Right. What's the next thing to think about? And it's been so transformative to me to have that permission and to think of that as that's how it's supposed to go. Right. Right. I feel anxious when new people find congregations for the first time and they're so excited and they feel like this place is perfect. I belong here. Oh, yeah. And I always say to them, that's great. I am so glad you feel that way. And we're going to screw up. So <laughs> what happens after that is the next most important thing. I remember when that happened for me in the congregation and you saying you have your membership moment when you find us and you love us. And then you have your remembership moment when we disappoint you and hurt you and you decide to stay. And I used to, when I did newcomer programs, say to them, if you're quitting smoking, they tell you to look to your left and look to your right. And one or two of those people and you will be smoking again in a year. I forget what they say. It's not very motivational. And what's your plan for how you're going to get back on the track? Because of course, quitting smoking like any lifestyle change, is not so much about executing it perfectly, but getting back on the track every time you fall off of the track until you don't fall off. Right. right? And I would say that thing to newcomers and say, X percent, I've forgotten how many, but it's a lot of people who join a congregation are not there in three years. What is your plan for when we disappoint you? What is your plan for building roots in this community? But so now I have a question for you, which is, How do you know the difference between I have been hurt and disappointed and it is time to have my membership moment Mm. and I have been hurt and disappointed and And the right thing to do is to transition and change? How do you know the difference? I know as a minister, you're supposed to say, if it's Unitarian Universalism, you should stay, but all other life decisions follow your heart and soul. Oh, I wish I believed that was true. (laughs) It would be so much easier to sum up. It would be so much easier. Um, I think it goes back to those two things. What does your gut tell you and how, who do you want to be in the world? So, I mean, I think trauma is tricky here, though, because if you've experienced trauma in your life and you get hurt, it can trigger the old memories. And it's hard to tell the difference between is this old memory trauma? Like, is it am I mm-hmm. am I reacting hard because it reminds me of some worse thing that happened Or is this my early early warning signal saying, get out of here, the same thing is going to happen, right? So we're... That's so hard to know. It's not as simple as just trusting your gut. So I go with the, what is important to me? Who do I want to be? What will make me proud of myself when I look back on this moment? And so sometimes I give something an extra try, even when I think I'm done, because I'm not sure that I know that I'm done. And I give it an extra try, because it mattered to me. And if it still feels crappy after the extra try, then I have to do what it takes to protect myself. Sometimes the extra try is what it takes to give you peace of mind, too. Yeah, Yeah, right. I won't regret not trying. I did that with the first serious boyfriend. So we split up. Who was the first serious boyfriend? I don't know this story. I just yeah. thought you got married to Barry. There's lots of reasons you don't know this story. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> We're not going there today. First serious oh. boyfriend. So we went out for a while and then he broke up with me. The nerve. And 
so my little heart was broken in that moment. Just broken. I remember yeah. going home to my mom's house and crying at the table. Pat, pat, pat. Cookies, ice cream, tea. And then about a week later, he was filled with regret because I was very nice to him and did a lot of things for him. And he suddenly <laughs> remembered how much better his life was when I was in it. Not a great reason to date someone. <laughs> and so he showed up and, you know, apologized and wanted to try again. And I already knew. And then I had to, I had that same question you were just talking about in my head about, do I need to give this another try? Mm -hmm. And I did. I gave it another try. and We didn't last a week. And then I got to break up with him, which was really fun. <laughs> that was an excellent transition moment. I got to go and say, you know what? I gave it an extra try, but it turns out you're dead to me. So... <laughs> In that time when we were apart and you discovered all of the things that I'd been doing, I discovered all the things I'd been doing as well. And it was nice not to have to do any of them. Turns, turns out I like my free time. And then he stopped me for a couple of months, which was evidence that I had made the right decision. And then um, he went away when, when people scared him off. How did you scare him off? I have people. So we need cheering sections. Yeah, lives, right. We have to have cheering sections. And that's one of the challenges. You may be creating a project all by yourself. It might be private and you don't want to share it. You don't want to lose so that the momentum that you have. But if you don't have cheering sections in your life, it's mm. so hard from the point of decision or change for all that long slog. It is so hard to keep going. I remember when I first left, someone who had had a divorce at church prior to me and who I had not been adequately supportive because I did not understand. Right. Um, so just to give her extra points, she <laughs> said, this was how I was treated and channeled that into making sure that it was better for the next person, which is quite the high road. <laughs> right. That wasn't mean. I just didn't understand how to be supportive. She was deciding who she wanted to be when she looked back and how she wanted to be remembered. Yep. <laughs> And she came over and she said, I need you to know you get me in the divorce. I am in your camp. Hmm. And I said, oh, well, it's very complicated and there's lots of different things and no, Gary's not a bad person and there's no need for camps. And she said, ha, ha, ha. Okay. And that's a, yeah. <laughs> that's nice, um, dear. She said, you misunderstand me. I didn't say I have the facts and I've decided you're in the right. That's not why I'm in your camp. <laughs> I'm sure that it's very complicated, but everybody needs some people in their camp. There'll be lots of people that will be in both camps and some people will be in here, but I am in yours because I am in your camp. <laughs> nice. And that was massively helpful. And that she didn't connect it to any of the facts of the situation, which she didn't have. Right. She was just like, I love you and I am in your camp. And I had never understood the value of blind loyalty until that moment. Right. Because I always thought, well, blind loyalty, you're pretending that person is good. And no, she wasn't pretending I was good or right. She was saying, I love you and you need a person in your camp. You can count on me. She was saying, you can count on me in this moment. Yeah. And that, and the fact that she didn't identify it as grounded in that I was right and he was wrong. Right. Made it even more powerful. That's And I just helpful. was very grateful for that. I thought of it when mm -hmm. you said sharing section. There is a thing that I want to say about transition, which is that it takes a massive amount of time yeah right like in the same way you'd block something out for a major project and I didn't understand that and so I was like what's the matter with me that I can't do this this and this while I am undergoing this transition mm -hmm. and I 
I think it was an author, I read something where she said, you know, you have to grieve the person you used to be. You have to figure out how to do a whole bunch of tiny logistical things. You have to undergo this emotional transformation. You have to figure out, she like laid out all the things and transition and usually the accompanying grief take a massive amount of time and energy. And because you're turning into a different person, you think, oh my goodness, this new person gets nothing done ever. It appears to mostly mope around writing in their journal and being a sad sack or whatever. <laughs> and that is not the case. That is just the phase, right? It, that would be like pausing mid-home renovation and going, boy, I don't want to live here. I <laughs> right? totally get that feeling. Yeah, I was going to ask, was that not unpleasant? Or did you have like any, I wish I had done X, Y, or Z? Or no. were you worried about going to heaven or hell? No, no. So I'm flying <laughs> through the air, hands easy. on the steering wheel in my little Toyota Corolla Deluxe sedan that sounded like a sewing machine. It had been my grandma's car. And <laughs> I'm flying off the road. I realize I am in the air. I know I'm going to die because that's what happens in movies. And I said out loud, well, guys, this is it. Was there any guys with you? No. There was no one in the car. For? I have no idea. But that moment hanging in the air where everything stopped and I knew oh it's over okay and I like just let go and I think that's that happens in transition in childbirth as well you have this moment where it's like "Eh, this is the worst thing ever and then you have (laughs) to let go did you end up narrating when things are hard like I just caught your moment well guys this is it And one of my most common things when things are hard is that I narrate. And I remember this most keenly when I was 15 and I left home. And in that year, I wrote down a lot. And it was as though I assumed I was going to need to tell the story of my life. And I remember thinking, why on earth do I think I'm going to need to do this? Who's going to have any? Because I assumed I was destined for life in a ditch. Like there was no indicator that I was a person with life skills of any kind. And yet you still thought you needed to narrate your life. And yet I still was like, because I'm you sure were born a writer. Flocks of people are going to want to read about my slow descent into this ditch. We'll make it funny and call it a podcast. I don't know what I have. I told you the story about the first time I tried to write a book when I was like eight or very young like no very young so I decided I was going to write a guide on being a child because I felt that most of the clearly nobody understood well most of the guides for being a child and the advice was from adults and we needed a book that was a child's guide to being a child uh, and this was going to be a bestseller and I remember that I know what the points were I don't still have the book but it didn't get very far it's less than a page. I didn't like <laughs> handwriting it was unpleasant I just like to give my opinion the reading the, guidance, the writing all too much work <laughs> The guidance was when you put salt on your food, lay it salty side down in your tongue, you'll taste the salt more. And don't use the Lori seasoning salt because your parents can tell how much salt you put on the food. But if you use white salt when they're not looking, they won't be able to tell. And Liz love salt. was don't put uh, white sugar or put white sugar, not brown sugar in your oatmeal because brown sugar changes the color of the milk and your parents will know how much sugar you put. <laughs> And these are the two things that I have to tell people about being a child. So really, it was the child's book of how to be sneaky. (laughs) But I knew that. And I knew about sugar and salt being bad for you. So then I'm staring at this page and I'm like, oh, but I don't know. Like when this becomes a bestseller, it will be pleasant for the children that they will learn how to get more salt and sugar in their diet. But I'm going to be contributing to... I think I thought salt and sugar both caused diabetes. Like I wasn't real clear, but they were all going to get very sick. But 
it should be their choice and kind of this whole <laughs> moral dilemma never once did it occur to me to put less salt or sugar in my food so i would not right. get these illnesses that i was worried that my legions of readers <laughs> were going to get so you looked back and thought can i live with being this person that leads all these children down the salt and sugar path so that's what killed my first book Aww, not an editor <laughs> <laughs> what I need in my life, Anne, is a good editor. <laughs> I remember your ministry transition and the Blood's Better pause. And I, so for the listener, um, I had already decided to be a minister, by the way. I always tell this story so that people don't think I just decided to become one because of you. You nope. said you were going to be a minister before me. You'd already invented a religion by then. No, I be became a Unitarian Universalist to save me the trouble of inventing a religion. I'm pretty sure you already had. But anyway, carry on. No, I didn't make my own religion. That involves a lot of, I was going to say a lot of reading, but bylaws. it's actually mostly writing. It, does involve, it doesn't involve bylaws in the beginning. It involves bylaws in the middle part that, where it's mm. already boring. All right. So, no, inventing a religion is like wandering around the countryside and spouting opinions. But still, mm -hmm. I didn't want to do that. So I had decided to be a minister, but was doing nothing about it because I had many small children. And <laughs> Anne arrived home from something or other, and she was in the kitchen of the church, and she was going on and on about how it should have been done better. So this is what should have happened. This is what should have. This is what should have. <laughs> I never and did I that. I said, <laughs> you did it like in the recording. La, la, la. You've done it in the last hour. So she was going on and on about what should be different. And I said... Well, clearly you should become a minister. And then Anne listed all of the reasons why she couldn't become a minister. And the whole time she was explaining, she was crying and bursting and dude. crying. And I was like, oh, so you don't think you should become a minister then? She's like, no, no, crying and listing all the reasons why I can't is a good indicator that it's a good idea. <laughs> it's like, this woman makes decisions in a very unusual way. <laughs> I should just add to that, the, to my list of things. I trust my gut. Uh, will I be proud of this person when I look back on myself? And did it make me cry? Because <laughs> if it didn't really? make me cry, maybe, yeah. If I don't care enough That's to true. cry about a decision, it's probably not real. It's not a blood spattered pause. I do remember that feeling of, oh, this is going to be awful and starting to cry and grieve and going into that. And it had been a while since I'd had a big crying and grief thing to deal with. And then always I have sort of patched myself up and gotten back on the road as quickly as possible. And I remember mm -hmm. with the divorce thinking, I'm going to go all the way down into it and take as long as it takes. And I'm not going to be afraid of the pain of it. And then I wasn't afraid of pain anymore. Mm. And I'd chosen it and then I go went through it and I knew I could do it. And there's right. something in that that then every other risk you take you think, well, what if this becomes painful? And then you think it's okay. I'm built for pain. I'm Liz James. I'm Ann Barker. And we are so glad that you could join us. to the cracked cup with Anne Barker and Liz James. We are so grateful to every one of you for listening. 
If you liked the podcast, it would be a huge help if you would rate us on your podcast player of choice, and especially consider sending a note to a friend who you think might also enjoy listening. A special thank you to our Patreon supporters, who have been providing so much encouragement and support behind the scenes we could not do this without you. For a few dollars a month, you too could become a Patreon supporter and get access to secret stickers, periodic Zoom gatherings, and starting this month, the blooper reel from the podcast. And starting next month, a Facebook group, but I will wait until I've set that up to go on about talking about it. The Cracked Cup was produced by Liz James and Anwen Dyko, and funding for this project comes from our Patreon supporters and also from the UU Funding Program. It was wonderful to have you with us, and we'll see you next month.